Father, we ask that you speak your words into our hearts, and we pray, Lord, this will be a life-changing time, that we wouldn't just be in here marking time, hear something and forget about it, the time lunch is over. Lord, we're asking you to plant some truth in us that that we can't really recover from, that will change us and set us on a course for accomplishing your purposes in us and through us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to talk to you a little bit about what Jesus did and why he did it. I think a lot of you would chime in and say, well, well Fred just told us, reminded us what Jesus did, that he uh, came to save the world. He came to go to the cross. He came to die a substitutionary death, die in our place, absorb our judgment for us, and then on the third day rise again, proving that that substitutionary atonement, that sacrificial death in our place actually worked to give us life, eternal life. If you answered that way, what did Jesus come to do? If you answered that way, you'd answer correctly. But I want to kind of massage that question a little bit and really focus more on what did he do before going to the cross? What did he concentrate his focus on? As we study the Gospels, what we see is that he concentrated his life and his ministry on making a handful of disciples who could continue his ministry after his departure, a handful of disciples who could reproduce, who could multiply, and could make other disciples. In fact, I want you to notice something that Jesus says in John 17. Let's look at this passage. In John 17, Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father before he goes to the cross. Now, keep that in mind. He says these things before the cross. John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now notice verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So in verse 4, Jesus says to his father that he accomplished the work that his father gave him to do. Now, what was that work? Again, he says this before he goes to the cross. What was the work that he was talking about? In John 17, verse 4. See, I think that that work most surely had to include the making of disciples that will continue after he had gone, continue to multiply and reproduce. In fact, let me show you another interesting passage in this light. Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says this. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, stop there, Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples. This is after Jesus has ascended to the Father in the book of Acts. Now, as they, those who were 
uh, watching them, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men in the traditional way, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So Jesus made disciples who were like him. But why? Why did Jesus focus on just a small group of disciples? It is true he taught large crowds. But the focus of his ministry, as we read the Gospels, was to invest into the lives of a small band of disciples who could, after he's gone, could reproduce themselves and make more disciples who would make more disciples. Now, why did Jesus do it that way? Well, let me ask you this. I asked someone this yesterday. Is is a young man about 32. I asked him this question. I said, would you rather have $10,000 a day for the entire month of August, 31 days? At the end, of course, that's $310,000. Would you rather have that or would you rather have one penny on day one and we double it so on day two you get two pennies? On day three, you got four pennies. On day four, you have eight pennies. All the way to day 31. So which would you rather have? Would you rather have $10,000 a day for 31 days or one cent doubled every day till we get to the end of August, August 31st? And he thought about it for a second. He said, I'll take the $10,000. I said, okay, then that means you get $310,000. You know what you would have got if you'd have taken a penny? And doubled it every day for 31 days? He said, no. How much? $10 million. $10,737,000. So which would you rather have? See, this shows the power of multiplication over addition. Let me give you another illustration. If you go to the Museum of Natural Science in Chicago... There is a display on one of their walls, and it's a checkerboard on the wall with 64 squares. And in this display, there's one grain of wheat in one square. And then below that display, it says this. If you double the amount of wheat as you move from square to square, how much wheat would you have when you finally reach the 64th square? Again, you go start with one, then you go to two, then to four, eight. How many grains of wheat would you have at the time you get to the 64th square? And then it says in the display, would you have a car load? Would you have a train load? And then it says, no, you would have enough wheat to cover the country of India six feet deep. Some of you are going, I think I need to do the math on that one. Do the math. Had someone tell me they missed half my message because they started doing math. So we'll do the math afterward. <laughs> but this is the power of multiplication over addition. Now let's apply this to the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations. The population in the world today is 7.8 billion people. Now, what is the best way to reach 7.8 billion people? All right, if you could speak to 1,000 people a day, preach to them, 
and preach with power, filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit's prepared their hearts. And you've got an elite team that goes ahead of you everywhere and gets a thousand different people ready for you every single day. If you could do that, a thousand a day, every day, how long would it take you to reach 7.8 billion people? It would take you 21,000 years. 21,000 years. And that assumes no population growth. Let's try something else. What if you did instead of that, you took three people and you focused on those three people for a year. And you taught them how to study the Bible, how to pray, how to be a multiplying disciple. So that the end of that one year, you had three. Now, that's a long way from 7.8 billion. All right, year two, you don't have three. You have three, you've made three more. So now what do you have? You have nine. All right, that's a long way, though, still from 7.8 billion. Okay, another year. The nine turns into 27. Are we ever going to get there? 7.8 billion. Year, at the end of year four, only 81. End of year five, only 243. End of year six, only 729. Under year seven, only 2,187. The end of year 21, you have over 10 billion. 10 billion. So you could do 1,000 a day, and it'll take you 21,000 years, or you could, we could do multiplication and focus on making multiplying disciples, and it could be done in 21 years, and that's if it's only you doing it. So through multiplication method, the world could be totally discipled in 21 years of just starting with just you. Now, again, this example is very idealistic. I understand this, but it does make the point. If one wants their life to really have a significant impact, then we want to be involved in multiplication. That is why Jesus did what he did. That's why he did it that way, because it was going to be the most effective way, the best way, the most fruitful way, and probably realistically the only way we're ever going to get this mission accomplished is if the church really embraces multiplication in ministry. Now, the Apostle Paul embraced it. Here's what he says to his young son of the faith, Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, and the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, so he's telling Timothy, I want you to teach these faithful men and let them teach others. He's trying to teach this principle of multiplication. Now, a couple months ago, we talked about the fact that the Apostle Paul had in his life a companion, an encourager, a dear friend, a supporter named Barnabas. Barnabas was a cheerleader in his life. He was that grandstand guy. He kept encouraging him, supporting him. How awesome would it be? Think about this now. How awesome would it be if everyone that considered them part of themselves a part of Grace Community Church, every one of us, had a Paul in our life, someone that would pour into us, and a Barnabas in our life, somebody who was a partner, a friend, a companion, who could walk and encourage us 
and a Timothy in our life, someone we could pour into and teach them to also eventually get a Timothy for their, in their life. How awesome would it be if every one of us had like a Paul, somebody that really could, someone older in the faith who could teach us and model ministry for us and direct us and help us become more like Christ and teach us the things we needed to know how to do. If we all had that person. And what if we all had a Barnabas, a companion, a trusted friend who walked with us, supported us, encouraged us, kept us on track? We all had a Timothy, maybe someone younger in the faith that we could help grow. We could pour our lives into them, and they could become a multiplying disciple and do it with somebody else as well. Well, this really is my prayer, and it's my commitment for Grace Community Church in the, year to, in the years to come, is that that would be something all of us would embrace. We'd all embrace it. We'd all embrace it because it would be the most productive way for us to make a difference, make an impact, and fulfill their great commission in the days to come. And speaking of the days to come, there will be more birth pains. Jesus told us so. There will be more birth pains like COVID. There are going to be more things coming that are going to be uh, more intense and more frequent. There are going to be some things coming that it is going to be impossible for us to do ministry the way that we have traditionally done it. But if we're all involved in a multiplying ministry, if we're all involved, we all have a Paul and a Barnabas and Timothy, then really it doesn't really matter what comes upon the earth you know, we'll be able to continue to bear much fruit and do ministry in these, in these webs of relationships. So what did Jesus do? He made multiplying disciples. Why did he do it? He did it because it was the best way to accomplish his mission, their great commission. It's the best way for it to be accomplished in good times and the best way for it to be accomplished in bad times. And by the way, in, in more bad times are coming. Now, this morning, there is an aspect of being a multiplying disciple that I want to focus on up front. It's something that a lot of times people don't think about. And even some of you right now have heard what I've said, and you're, and you're intimidated by it. You're, you're thinking, I, I can't do this. I, ha I have nothing to offer. I'm, I'm fearful of, of stepping out, and uh, I don't want to, I, I'm afraid of rejection, all kinds of stuff, all kinds of emotions. But I want you to see something in the Great Commission that's easily missed that we must not miss. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, let's look at the passage again. I know you've, many of you have seen this passage thousands of times. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to notice something. Something that I think is easily missed, and, I, and I've rarely ever heard it talked about in this passage. I want you to notice that the source of power behind all true disciple-making is the all-authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the power behind disciple-making. Even today, if I could say, say it this way, he, he, he does the magic of disciple-making. He does it. He does the work that matters most in disciple-making. He 
actually does the heavy lifting of making it happen today. Every time I've ever endeavored to invest my life into the life of another man, I'll be honest with you, I feel totally inadequate on the outset. I feel like, you know, I don't have really, I don't have what they need. I don't have it. No matter how great my plan is, no matter uh, how much I think I'm really, you know, you know, ready to do this, I just, I sense my inadequacy every time. But here's the grace I want to tell you about. As I have kept over the years making my little pitiful investments into someone's life, my little pathetic efforts to invest in, and encourage and strengthen their lives, what I've found out is one modest conversation at a time, one meeting, one discussion at a time, and it seems like nothing's really happening, but then God will surprise me with a result. A result that's way beyond my effort. Often at times it happens when I'm least expecting it. It's like God just kind of does a reveal, just pulls the covers off, and I'm seeing a person that's changed. I see a person that is mature, that cares about Christ and, and, and loves his word and is praying and is, is, is loves the body of Christ. And I just I back up and I just think, wow, you did it again. He did it again. I got an email uh, just a couple months ago from a friend who is now pastoring a church. And he wrote me and he said, I had a dream, and I quote, I had a dream last night with you in it. It was a sweet reminder of the years you invested in me up close and trusted me to serve in ministry. And even now, you continue to bless me from a distance. I just wanted to say, thank you, in all caps, thank you. And I just thought, I mean, this, that kind of thing blows my mind because I never really thought I was making a very big impact in his life. But here's the beauty of it. I want you to notice what Jesus says in Mark. 426 through 29. Jesus tells a parable. Starting in Mark 426, he says, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and he gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Disciple making, in my experience, is like that. I scatter some seed, and it seems really so pitiful. It seems so weak. It seems so insignificant, the contribution that I'm making. And then I go to sleep. The seed sprouts, and it grows. Almost in, you know, perceptibly, it grows. I mean, I want to say, I don't know how. There's not a clear cause and effect relationship between the investments I'm making and the fruit I'm seeing. Why? Because God is doing something. God is involved. God is giving the growth. Jesus is the all authority power behind what's happening. He's the one driving this. And every once in a while, I'll back up and I'll see what God has done and I'll think, you did it again. You did it again. And I think God does it this way so we'll all realize he did the heavy lifting. 
He's the one who gets the glory. He's just looking for some people to say, I'll be glad to be part of it. I don't have much to offer, but here I am. I'll, I'll participate. And he will do the hard, heavy lifting. You know, it's, I think, a com, really a common denominator of my disciple-making experience over the years has been this, that the end investment proves manifestly more fruitful than it typically feels during the process. The end result is a whole lot bigger than I felt like I was going anywhere when I was doing it. Why? Because the Lord is driving it. He is energizing it. Last year, the Lord put in my heart to make a phone call. And the phone call was to a man by the name of Dr. Bill Seaver. 43 years ago, I was a 20-year-old college student. He was a statistics professor at Louisiana Tech University. He also, in his low thir- young, he was in his low 30s at the time, and he came running with the distance runners on the track team, and I was on the track team. I threw the javelin, and anyway, so I, I ended up, you know, I was, I was a new believer following Christ all my heart, and he was discipling two men, two of the distance runners. One, one went to Greece as a missionary, one went to Africa, but he discipled them for two years. And so I came to him and said, would you take me on? And he's like, well, I can't right now. I'm committed to these two men. He said, maybe next year. I said, so I kept coming to him. I'm ready. Take me on. He says, I can't yet. I can't yet. Finally, he relinquished and he took me on. And he began to pour into me over the next couple of years and dramatically impacted my life. Well, anyways, 40-something years later, the Lord puts it on my heart to to track him down. I don't even know if he's alive. And call him. So I I did track him down and found out. He was was at Indiana University still teaching statistics last year. So I called him up, and of course, he remembers me right away, and we start chatting, and and as we're talking, it was clear to me why the Lord had me call him, because there was some discouragement in his voice, because he was thinking, what difference am I making? I'm spending two years with two guys, and two years with two guys, and two years with two guys, and I just wonder what difference I'm making. And I just realized, I, and I said, well, now I, I know why I'm talking to you. Because 43 years ago, you changed my life. And you made all kinds of difference. And there's all kinds of lives that have been impacted because you invested into my life. And see, that's the thing. That's, that's the beauty of, of this whole discipleship process. We often don't realize that God has used us until it's already happened. That's how it works. And that's just like God, to work quietly, inconspicuously, slowly, kind of beneath the surface, you know. And then the child is born, and the stone is rolled away, and the scales fall off the eyes, and we see what God has done. Well, one thing I hope this, this does, among others, is that not only inspire every one of us that we realize that, wait a second, it's not all up to me. I can take this first step. And I'm going to tell you what that first step is, and I'm going to tell you every step, and all of it is simple and doable because we're not doing any of the heavy lifting. God is. But I hope this will help you understand why you can say yes to this uh, process. Also, I hope it will help you say yes to enduring in a process even when it doesn't look like you're seeing much fruit because the fruit will happen because this is Christ's mission, and he's empowering it. In fact, I want to point out in the remaining minutes that we have how involved the Lord is in this process. Let's start off 
with the power of the new birth. Let's read 1 Peter verse, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, listen to this, has caused us to be born again. He did it. Let me read that again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So those whom we might, that we would invest into, God is the one who caused them to be born again. God has started something himself, and he will continue it. He will bring it to completion. In fact, here's what the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that you, I'm sorry, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So the gospel word of God not only produces the new birth, caused you to be born again, but it is still at work in you. So that person that you're investing into, God caused them to be born again, and God's word is still working in them. It's not just up to you. His word is working in them. Okay? But that's not all. Number two, the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8. Verse 9 through 11, listen to this. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit, listen to this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the spirit of God dwells in you and the spirit of God dwells in that young believer, perhaps, you know, whatever, wherever they are in their pilgrimage, maybe they're young, maybe they've been walking with the Lord for a little while, whatever the case is, they have the spirit of God dwelling in them. All right, so think about that. The very power of God himself has come to live inside that person. The power of God, the Holy Spirit is in them, dwells in them. I want you to think about that. The same Spirit who empowered Jesus' earthly ministry is in that person. So it's not just up to you. It's not up to our, our pathetic, pitiful, weak little efforts to invest in somebody. It's not just up to that. They have two things we've already mentioned. They have the word of the gospel is in them still working. Still working. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives in them, and he's working. It's not just up to us, but there's more. All right, let's read this passage. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore he, talking about Jesus Christ, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since, listen to this, he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God-man, ascended to heaven to the right hand of his Father, 
And it says he always lives to make intercession for us. So right now, he's praying for you. And he's praying for the person you would invest your life into. So think about that. They've got the word of the gospel still in them working. The word of God is still at work. And they got the Holy Spirit in them working. And they got Christ praying for them, and he's working. But there's more. Let me give you another one. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Disciple-making will help you realize your weakness, perhaps as much as anything in life. But knowing your weakness can actually be a great place to be because when we realize we're weak, he can really you know, perfect his power in our weakness. He can express his power. So you, some of you were thinking, as soon as you heard about this, you're thinking, ah, I can't do that. I, I don't have what it takes. I'm intimidated. That's a great place to be because you don't have what it takes and neither do I. But we're not doing it alone. You've got the word of the gospel in them working. You've got the Holy Spirit living in them working. You've got Christ interceding, praying for them and praying for you. And we've got, in our weakness, Christ manifesting his power. Wow. You know, I got an email some time ago, just out of the blue, from a pastor in Michigan. I'd never met him. I didn't know him. But somehow he stumbled across some message I'd given that I'd forgot about, and he got it on tape, and he said, and he wrote me this email, and I quote, I just want to write you and say thank you for saving my ministry and saving my life. God directed me to a message you preached, and it saved me. Thank you. And it just so happened that he wrote that email to me on a day when I was feeling discouraged, feeling, really feeling my, my weakness and inadequacy. And then once again, God's like saying, see, my strength is perfected in your weakness. I can do all kinds of things. If you would just be, say yes to the process, just be involved, and I'll do the heavy lifting. I'll do the miracle of disciple-making. God loves to use us in our weakness. His power is made perfect in our weakness. So don't talk yourself out of being part of this process that all of us can be and should be involved. And don't give up prematurely because you're not seeing the result right away because there will be a revealing. Eventually, you're going to see the crop grow and go, whoa, God, you did it again. So they got the gospel word of God working in them. They got the Holy Spirit living in them, working. They got Christ praying for them. And they got a promise. We got the promise that he's going to show his power in my weakness. Wow. It is not just up to us to do this. Jesus does the magic, does the work, does the power. All we do is we just say, I'll be part of it. And we take one step at a time. Discipleship is a slam dunk deal if we'll just decide we're going to participate. God does the heavy lifting. All we got to do is take some simple steps. And so what are the simple steps? I want to give you really... The first two steps this morning, very simple. The first step is simply this. 
First step I want you to take is simply to believe that multiplication really is the way to get the job done. Believe it. That's why I spent so much time on those illustrations. That is really God's plan for getting the job done. And believe that you should be a part of it. And then I want you to do the second thing, simply this. I want you to begin to pray and think about who could be your Paul, so to speak. Who could be the person that could pour into your life? And who could be your Barnabas, that companion, that close friend who's kind of at the same level as you, but you will encourage each other? And who could be that Timothy? Who could be that young person that you could, that young believer? They may be older than you, but they're a young believer, younger than you in the faith, and you, who could be that person you could pour into? So I want, you, I want you to begin to pray and think about that. And that's all I want you to do today. I want you to believe the power of multiplication. Believe it's not up to you. And he does the heavy lifting. And begin to say, Lord, who could be my Paul? Who could be my Barnabas? Who could be my Timothy? That's all. That's all I'm asking you to do today. You know, I've had several different Pauls in my life over the years. And I want to close by telling you the story of one of them. His name was K.K. Wells. Early as a church, this is over 30 years ago, we had, <clears throat> had a lot of new converts, new believers in our church, and we were going to do our first baptism service. And so I thought it would be a good idea to have some baptism robes just for modesty's sake, not you know, for any other reason, just for the sake of modesty. And so I, I, I got a phone book. Of the young, young people, there used to be these books. <laughs> so they had phone books back then, and I, I was trying to find out where can I get baptismal robes. And I, I came across Hudson Robe Company. In East Fort Worth, there was a woman who worked out of her house. She happened to be a pastor's wife. Her name was Vivian Wells, and she made robes. So I got on the phone with her and began to talk to her. And as we talked, we really, really hit it off and so well. And, and she said, why don't you come over? And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come over this week. I came over, and as I got to meet with her, I got to meet her husband, Reverend K.K. Wells, and an African-American couple, pastor in a very large African-American church in East Fort Worth. And we just, we just became great friends. So in the process of the whole robe thing, God did uh, God orchestrated a friendship, but really became more than that. Uh, K.K. Wells really became a mentor in my life. And be some very, very dear to me. And in uh, fact, when he and his wife would come over to our house to eat, and she would bring her father, who was 102, and had a better memory than me, and he'd come over, and we had just delightful, delightful times. But one of the things he did for me, there's a couple times... There were a couple key points uh, during that time where I was really discouraged and I thought, you know, I think I'm done. I think I'm just done with this. And both those times, KK called me up. And I picked the phone up and I'd say, hey, and he'd say, Gary, tell me what's going on. The Lord just told me to call you. What's going on? And I would tell him. And he'd, and he'd say, well, let's pray right now. And he'd just, boy, he'd take us right into the throne room in prayer and time he was done, I'm ready to get back in the game. But he had, we had that kind of friendship and relationship. And, 
And he, uh, some of you that were around back in those days, uh, remember him. He preached in our church. We even had services together with their church. And, and I was with him when he lost one leg and then lost the other leg through diabetes and then lost his eyesight. But he still, even though he was blind and had in a wheelchair, he had prosthetics, and he would say, before he preach, he'd say, Gary, help me to the pulpit. No one should sit and speak the word of God. So he'd, he'd get up there in his prosthetics. He was blind. He'd fill for the pulpit. And then his dentures would start to fall out, and he'd snap them back in place. And then he'd preach. And I loved him. And uh, the diabetes kept getting worse and worse. And one day Vivian called me up and she said, Gary, would you, because he was in assisted living, she really couldn't take care of all the medical. And she said, would you go see KK? He needs, he needs you. So I drove over there and the first time I'd ever seen him despondent like that, discouraged, I began to talk to him. And he started, he's talking like, he wondered if his life made a difference. He was discouraged and I'm like, now I know why I'm here. You made a huge difference in my life. And I'm so grateful. Well, he passed on and uh, I got a call from Vivian. She said, Gary, would you be one of the pallbearers at the funeral? I said, it'd be my honor. And so I went over, we, Trace and I went to the funeral. <clears throat> and again, this, this, this giant church packed and we were the only non-African American people walking in. And it was late summer, and Tracy had been out in the sun a lot, so she kind of blended in in the back, you know. But I didn't blend in. And I'm one of the pallbearers, and I'm up front sitting, and all the older pastors were up on the, on the, up on the stage, and they were all, it was like a four-hour preach-off. But all the young guys, we were all sitting off, all the pallbearers were sitting off the side, so it was me and the other uh, younger pastors were sitting there. And, and again, I'm the only white guy in the place, and, and one of the uh, Young, young pastor looks at me and says, man, I got to ask you a question. I said, what? He said, what are you doing here? <laughs> I said, KK meant the world to me. And I wouldn't be anywhere else. <laughs> See, we make a tremendous difference if we would just become part of the process. See, God's not asking you to be a superhero. He's a superhero. He does all the super stuff. He just wants us to be a part of it. And I think it's just part of a training program, you know. I think this whole life here on earth right now, before the Lord comes, is just an internship for the real thing coming. But for, I mean, right now, he says, you're, you know, remember, he says things like, you're faithful to these five things, now you're over five cities. You're faithful these 10 things. Now you're over 10 cities. We're in training. He just wants us to be involved in the process. He will do the heavy lifting. And so in the, in the days to come, in the, in the next few Sundays, I'm going to give you some next steps. But all I'm asking you today is begin to say, okay, Lord, show me who my Paul is. Who is my Barnabas and who's my Timothy? And I want to conclude this service by letting the Lord speak. So I'm going to just invite you to close your eyes here in this room. Close your eyes at home. Stay focused. We're about to close. But just with your eyes closed now, let's just go before the Lord. Father, you, you have a plan. We're not coming up with a plan and asking you to bless it. We're asking you to show us your plan. Lord, would you even right now, with our eyes closed here, would you, speak, would you just give us images on, with our mind's eye 
to see who is that person that you want to be our Paul, and who's that person you want to be Barnabas to us, and who is that person you want us to pour into like Timothy. So, Lord, would you just show us? Lord, whatever you don't complete this morning, would you show us this week? Show us, Lord. And Father, we're so grateful we belong to you. We're so grateful that you've given us this high and noble calling to be in part of this the greatest endeavor in the history of the universe. That we're part of it. We thank you. We're calling us into this. And so, Lord, now we just and I thank you, Lord, that you're doing all the heavy lifting. And we can just roll that burden onto you and be part of this process and watch what you'll do. So I want to thank you in advance for all you're going to do. And I pray, Lord, that this will become something that's, that's, that is really embraced by not just our church, but around the world, that we might see things speed up and behold your return, Jesus.